Welcome to the Film Show. I'm Kebu. I'm S.W. Conser. And today we're bringing you part two of our tribute to the breakthrough documentary style known as direct cinema. In this episode, we have a 2015 interview with filmmaker Gina Lebrecht, whose recent collaboration with Les Blank, How to Smell a Rose, is an intimate portrait of direct cinema pioneer Richard Leacock. But first, let's listen to Jen Chavez's conversation with a legendary director who is still making films well into his 80s, half a century after his landmark debut, Titicut Follies. Frederick Wiseman is an attorney-turned-filmmaker who has used his camera to open doors to audiences. He's offered intimate views of institutions and communities, from state legislatures to boxing gyms. And along the way, his films have helped to change both laws and attitudes. Jen sat down with Mr. Wiseman during his 2016 visit to Portland and asked him about his detached style of filmmaking that allows viewers to come to their own conclusions. So without further ado, here's Jen Chavez with Frederick Wiseman. Fred, thanks very much for joining me and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so the film you're screening tonight is Titicut Follies, your first uh, major film from 1967. And I wonder if you could start by talking about how you first became familiar with Bridgewater. As I understand it, it wasn't from a filmmaking perspective, but no, from a legal um, perspective, right? Before I started making movies, I went to law school and I taught law for four years. And one of the courses I taught was a course in legal medicine. And I took the students uh, on tours uh, of prisons, criminal trials, probation hearings, parole hearings, uh, mental hospitals, to uh, give them, to introduce some reality into the course, because usually the appellate court decisions were very badly written. And I wanted them to see the kind of places their clients may end up in if they didn't represent them properly. so, uh, and one of the places I I took the students to visit was the Bridgewater State Prison for the Criminally Insane. And when I finally had had it with teaching law and wanted to make movies, I thought that would be a good subject. And I knew the um, the superintendent of the prison from the visits that I'd made with the students, and he readily agreed. And then it. It took me a year and a half to get permission uh, from the Commissioner of Correction and and other authorities, but I finally did, and I started Fantastic. the movie. Yeah, and I, I read you filmed there for about a month. Is that right? The shooting was about yeah. a month, yeah. And then the you sh- spent quite a long time on editing afterwards. Uh, right? Yeah, the shooting was a month, and then it took me about a year to edit it. Wow. Um, because I had, I think for the followers, I had about 80 hours, which is less than I've had on film subsequently, but still 80 hours reduced to 82 minutes uh, is, you know, as someone a, who edited, a wide choice. As someone who edits radio pieces, I can definitely relate, although I don't know if I've ever had 80 hours of raw footage. At the time, were there any technological developments that enabled you and, and some of your contemporaries to make the type of movies that you made um, that were classified later as, as direct cinema filmmaking? The invention of a technique that allowed the camera and the tape recorder to run at the same speed at 24 frames a second. Because before that, the camera and the tape recorder had to be uh, connected by a cable. And by eliminating the cable with a crystal control unit in the camera and the tape recorder, 
you could move around much more easily. I started working a couple of years after that technology was discovered. And, and what they did was to adapt an already existing camera to that system. That's my understanding of it. So you've said before that people you film typically don't acknowledge your camera or let it affect their behavior, and that this was true for Titicut Follies. Um, to me, that seems counterintuitive, especially in the context of this movie where prison staff are depicted doing a variety of disturbing things with uh, little to no inhibition. I think of, for example, the way police edit themselves when they're being filmed. So the fact that people aren't weren't more guarded or um, more self-aware during this um, situation surprises me. Did that ever surprise you? That well, it people... always surprises me, but, I mean, you, you take the example of police, uh, for example, uh, to repeat the word example. Uh, I did a movie about the Kansas City Police uh, in 1968, just a couple of years after the, uh, I made The Follies, and there's a scene in that where a policeman strangles a woman who's accused of prostitution in front of the camera. Uh, he didn't kill her. He let her go after about 30 seconds. But, and and then he, she says to him, she says to one of the other policemen who's holding her arms, he, referring to the man who was trying to strangle her, was trying to strangle me. He, uh, and the other cop says, no, he wasn't. You were just imagining it. And yet you, the viewer, have just seen the first cop uh, strangling the woman. Now, you could argue that if we hadn't been present, he would have killed her. I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I'm not bringing this up as an illustration of police brutality because there are plenty of other sequences in the film that show police doing useful things, but it is an example of police brutality. But I think that that policeman thought it was all right to strangle a woman because she had knocked an undercover policeman down the stairs of the seedy hotel where he'd taken her uh, before he could arrest her. Uh, and uh, I think what was going on was the police were simply shaping up the woman to the system that existed between the police and prostitutes. And he says to her at one point, uh, don't screw around with our boys. That's not quite the word he used. Uh, and if you, get if you get busted, you know, We'll take you down to the station house. You'll be photographed and fingerprinted, and you'll be pay your $50 fine, and you'll be out in the street in a half an hour. But don't screw around with our boys. So that I, he, he choked her or strangled her uh, because he, he was angry that she had knocked the undercover cop uh, down, and he tumbled down the stairs, and she'd fled to the basement of the hotel. So he thought that was perfectly appropriate behavior for a policeman in a situation where the woman had uh, uh, knocked down or assaulted, you could say, the undercover policeman. Uh, and I, I think I bring that up as an example because I think it's only an extreme uh, illustration of what goes on all the time. We all act in ways that we think are appropriate for the situation that we're in. That policeman thought, it was appropriate to choke that woman because of her behavior with another policeman. And um, because, he, I mean, he had no sense of the of the impression that that sequence might create on somebody else or so how somebody else watching that might judge his behavior. 
And I think it's that's true of all of us. Uh, uh, although that's just an extreme example. And I think that's one of the reasons you, I can make the kind of films that I make. Another reason is that I think most of us aren't good enough actors to suddenly change our behavior when our picture is being taken. If we don't want our picture taken, we say no or walk away or thumb our nose. But if we agree to have our picture taken and our voice recorded, we we act in, in normal ways. In the odd chance, the very rare, in my experience, situation uh, where uh, people start to act for the camera, it's almost instantly you're almost instantly aware of it because their behavior is so different. And in that, in that, you're exercising, in that situation, you're exercising the same judgment that a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or anybody that deals with a lot of people all the time, an interviewer for a radio station, you know when, for lack of a better term, uh, somebody's trying to bullshit you. And your bullshit meter rises a little bit. And if it happens while you're shooting, you stop shooting. If it, you only realize it till you get to in the editing room. You don't use the sequence. But it happens so infrequently as not to be a problem. That's the only explanation I can think of. Because if people acted for the camera, you would think that it would push their behavior toward a bland center. And in making these movies now for a very long time, I've been able to record such a wide diversity of human behavior from great cruelty, uh, the situation that I just mentioned to you, but also to great kindness uh, and, and civility. So um, that's my long answer to the question. It's, it's great. Thank you. Um, I'm curious about whether, you know, Titicut Follies served in a way as an expose as uh, of the conditions at the hospital. Um, so I'm wondering if you had any intention while making the film of advocating for institutional reform or it being an active advocacy. Um, well, I, I, I don't think I make advocacy films. You couldn't make a film about Bridgewater, which is where the Follies was made, without showing what a horrible place it was. Uh, but I... My principal motive in all the films is to present the place in all its complexity and ambiguity. Uh, and I think the follies, because the prison was such a horrible place uh, that you couldn't help but conclude uh, that it was a horrible place. Uh, but at the same time, the film, I think, deals with other ideas as well. For example, the, the so-called middle-class helping professionals were incompetent and are shown to be incompetent in the film, the, the psychiatrists and the social workers. On the other hand, the guards, in their own rough-and-ready way, not always, but very often, were kind and considerate and much more tuned in to the inmates uh, uh, than the so-called middle-class helping professionals and that the film shows that as well. Um, and you also, I mean, one has to keep in mind that many, not all the inmates, because some were had committed no crimes at all, but many of the inmates had committed some of the worst crimes imaginable. I mean, they, they had done what we've all done in our worst nightmares uh, uh, in terms of uh, assault, uh, uh, rape, uh, pedophilia, I mean, you name it. Uh, not, I mean, some of them, as I say, had done nothing, but many of them 
you know, because of their illness, uh, uh, had done horrible things. Uh, and the film really raises the question, despite the uh, the violent and and uh, and antisocial, for lack of a better term, acts that many of the inmates had committed. What is the obligation of the state to provide them with uh, proper services and health care, psychiatric care, a decent place to live? And I think the more general question the film—that's the more general question the film poses—and. Uh, uh, just when the, there was a long trial about Titty Got Follies, which I won't bore you with, but while the trial was going on, my lawyer had dinner one night with a man who was then the United States senator from uh, Massachusetts, a Republican senator, and they were discussing the Titty Got Follies case. And the senator said to my lawyer, you know, Bridgewater's a horrible place, uh, but the, the state only has minimum resources available. Would you prefer that those resources be used to create a better place for these people who've committed all these horrible crimes, or would you prefer that go into education? Now, that's an extremely harsh and very conservative view, but it, it, it's a perfectly legitimate view. Uh, 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 it's not a choice that I would make. I would say one tries to find the resources for both. But uh, it's an expression of a political view. And the film, the film, in addition to showing the specifics of life at Bridgewater, tries to suggest these more general questions uh, that are raised by seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, Another and, long answer. No, it's great. And, and uh, I, I'm happy that you brought up, we don't need to go that much further into it, but there was a trial and your film was banned from public release until 1991, correct? Yeah, 1990, I think. I yeah. Forgot. yeah. I found one thing really interesting before moving on that the issue was the patient's right to dignity and to privacy, but a lawyer who represented an inmate who died there in the 80s said that if it wasn't for the banning of your film that his patient might still be alive. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's so, you so, have to send me that link. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh. I think it was in the late 80s, so I, th- I found that paradox kind of interesting of of how it benefits or harms well, I mean, um, I, the inmates. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things your, your comments raise is the whole issue of the connection between documentary film and social change. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very... Uh, it's very hard to know whether film has any effect or not. I mean, the the pompous, presumptuous, self-serving thing is to say that it does. But there's no way you really know that. Uh, and in a democratic society, people have access to information from a variety of sources, from movies, from radio station interviews, from other movies, from books, um, television magazines, newspapers, etc. There are multiple, you know, to, to say there are multiple sources of information is is a cliche, but it's true. So there's no way of of assessing the connection between any one film, movie, play, newspaper expose, radio station program, etc. and social change. And uh, the there's both a lot of naivete and a lot of pomposity 
connected with saying, self-serving statements connected with saying there is. I'm not saying that there's no effect, but I think it's extremely difficult to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, so beyond the direct effect of your film, um, societal treatment of those with mental illness has changed a lot um, following the deinstitutionalization of many uh, facilities like Bridgewater. Now, unfortunately, as a result, we see a a lot of people struggling with mental illness, living on the streets, unable to access care. Um, My takeaway from Titicut Follies, at least, was that the mental health system of 1967 was broken. Um, First of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, do you think it still is? You know, I haven't been in a place like Bridgewater since 1966, so I'm in, I'm in no position to generalize. It's certain, I mean, my, it certainly was broken at Bridgewater in the trial connected with the Follies. Uh, the chief psychiatrist at Bridgewater at the time was asked what books, if any, he'd read in the field. And the only book and this trial was in 1967, the only book, psychiatric book, he could remember reading was a book by Bloyer on dementia precox, which had been written in 1918. And he was asked what training he'd had uh, uh, that qualified him for his job as the chief psychiatrist at Bridgewater. And he said, on-the-job training. Uh, but he so that he had, had no residency uh, in psychiatry and he wasn't board qualified in psychiatry. Uh, so, you know, he didn't know what he was doing. Uh, right. And I, I, I think uh, that someone watching the film and watching the psychiatrists and social workers who were working at Bridgewater at that time in action couldn't help but come away with the conclusion that they were incompetent Mm -hmm. and that, in fact, there were no uh, really uh, useful psychiatric services being offered. In fact, one of the inmates, a very articulate inmate, in a case conference, he he basically gives a critique of Bridgewater when he's asked a question by a psychiatric board, and his critique is absolutely accurate. I've been speaking today with documentary filmmaker Frederick Wiseman. Frederick, thank you very much for joining us on KPU today. Well, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. You're listening to a special film show episode all about the documentary movement known as Direct Cinema. I'm S.W. Conser. For our next segment, let's join up with Gina Labrecht. She's the filmmaking partner of the late great documentarian Les Blank director of such films as Always for Pleasure and Burden of Dreams. Back in the year 2000, Gina and Les visited Richard Leacock to talk about his role in creating the technology which led to the golden age of documentary films in the 1960s. So, Gina Labrecht, welcome to the film show. Hello, thank you for having me. Yes, thanks for coming on board. We want to ask you about this this film now. It's a really intense film. Uh, Les Blank, who was your filmmaking partner, you went to visit Richard Leacock, who is this amazing filmmaker. He's just part of the history of modern film. And uh, this film is now available. It's coming up on DVD. It's been screening in festivals. It's been around the country. It's on Fandor. Tell us about uh, How to Smell a Rose. 
Well, back in 2000, uh, Les and I went and visited Ricky Leacock at his farm in Normandy for four or five days and just recorded him telling stories about his filmmaking experiences. Um, He actually lived through several eras of filmmaking and was an instigator in the American Cinema Verite movement. So we just recorded conversations with him and filmed him cooking. He was a fabulous cook. Yeah, those are great scenes. And yeah. Well, uh, the American... um Cinema Verite movement is often called direct cinema, and famous filmmakers from uh, from that era include D.A. Pennybaker and Albert Mazels, who directed the documentaries Gimme Shelter and Grey Gardens. And we've been privileged to have Albert on the show, uh, who, the, the late Albert Mazels now. Uh, he was interviewed by KBOO's own Kate Welch. Uh, but Richard Leacock was instrumental in creating the portable camera equipment that made direct mm-hmm. cinema possible and which has you know, now become a staple of documentary uh, production. Absolutely. I mean, it revolutionized filmmaking because um, before they were tied down by really heavy equipment. They had to be on a tripod. There had to be a cable connected to a sound person. And you could, um, there were handheld cameras, but there was no sync sound. So what they did was that they invented handheld cameras that have synchronous sound and it completely liberated them and they could move around with their subjects and record dialogue and record things as they were really happening. Yes, in the 60s, uh, there was an incredible intimacy that you got with a lot of politicians. Uh, these filmmakers, it sort of took them off guard because they didn't have to set up a tripod. They would just get in close and they would get all these people unguarded, which would never happen nowadays. I know people are much more media savvy now than they used to be. And so back then, you know, they could just install themselves in certain situations and and literally just kind of disappear. And people would forget that they were in the room filming. I mean, there's an art to that in itself, you know, being able to disappear. Now, one of the great documentary filmmakers was your collaborator, Les Blank, who uh, we're sorry to have lost because here in Portland, uh, his screenings have always been very popular at uh, independent theaters around town. He, you know, not just his, his portraits are not just intimate, but they're they're funny. Right. Well, he took Cinema Verite and he sort of took it to the next step. He was just slightly younger than these masters of Cinema Verite. So what Les did was he used a lot of their techniques to film um, his subjects. But then in the editing room, he really took it to another level by combining music and images and creating something completely new and different. The Cinema Verite filmmakers would never have used music the way Les did, and they would never have done you know, poetic imagery. They just wanted to record things the way that they happened. Generally without a narrator. And preferably without a narrator, which often they were not able to pull off. It's actually a very difficult thing Mm -hmm. to do to make a film with no narration. Um, None of Les's films have narration except for Burden of Dreams. Um, The the, the portrait of uh, the great uh, German filmmaker Werner Herzog. That's right. Um, He had to use a narrator for that film because uh, PBS wouldn't air it without a narrator. See, they wanted a certain kind of formula. They wanted something predictable, and they didn't believe that audiences could follow a film that didn't have narration. 
So you are now uh, one of the keepers of Les Blanc's legacy, and you're actually working on a documentary about Les's career in life with uh, his son. I am. I actually started filming Les right at the same time that we were filming Ricky Leacock back in 2000. And I've been filming him over the course of about 15 years. And after he died, I asked his son, Herod, to collaborate with me. Um, so we've been working together the last couple of years. And basically in the film, I'm really looking at the way that Les developed his unique cinematic vision and all the things that happened in his life that led to those things. So, Literally, you know, answering the question, how did Les Blank become Les Blank? So you were uh, also instrumental in getting Les. Les doesn't like to be on camera, but, but you wanted to show that intimacy between him and Richard Leacock in the film How to Smell a Rose, and, uh, and that really becomes very touching. Yeah, originally Les was making the film the way he made his other films, which was to be kind of hidden behind the camera. And when I was there with them, um, afterwards I realized, you know, really the magic was in this interaction between the two of them. And so as I was editing the film, I, I approached Les about the idea of including him more in the film. And he really was not open to the idea. And so I dropped it. And then um, shortly before he died, I brought it up again. And he seemed more open to it. And so we did this, this one last interview with him, which is at the beginning of the film. And it was literally, you know, two weeks before he died where we got him talking about his relationship with Ricky and why he was so interested in making this film. Well, how can people keep up with the progress on this film that you're doing about Les Blank and about the collaboration that you did with him before he died, which is How to Smell a Rose? Well, I have a website. Uh, GinaLebrec.com, and I have a mailing list, and I send out very occasional emails, like quarterly, giving updates on the film. And um, I think that's probably, you know, Facebook also is a good way. I occasionally post things on Facebook about the film on less. Um, as far as How to Smell a Rose, it's available on most of the streaming portals, and in January it will be available on Netflix, and I believe the DVD is coming out in January. And we're, I'm still doing occasional theatrical screenings, like one-offs like we did at the Hollywood. Well, we know that uh, you used to be a Portland native. You're based in uh, the Bay Area now and traveling around, but we certainly hope to see you back in Portland uh, next chance you get. Absolutely. Well, Gina Lebrecht, thank you so much for joining us. The uh, film is How to Smell a Rose, and uh, we hope that you'll come back and join us again soon. Definitely. Thank you very much. I'm S.W. Conser, and you've been listening to a special film show episode featuring some of the pioneers of the documentary movement known as direct cinema. We hope you'll also check out part one of this series featuring Grey Gardens director Albert Mazels as well as Down from the Mountain directors D.A. Pennybaker and Chris Hegedus. Special thanks to our guests today, Frederick Wiseman and Gina Lebrecht. Thanks also to the Oregon Media Production Association for their support and collaboration. And thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. The audio for this show is available on our archive page, kboo.fm slash thefilmshow. And you can keep up with us on Twitter, at KBOO Film Show. I bet I did my-